Roughly half of all the people living with HIV in the world are receiving antiretroviral therapy, and the United Nations has committed to the goal of ending the AIDS pandemic as a public health threat by the year 2030. But increases in the prevalence of HIV drug resistance in recent years could complicate those efforts. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Chris Byer, a professor of epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Byer has co-authored a perspective article on combating and preventing resistance to HIV treatment. Dr. Byer, you write in your article that the prevalence of HIV drug resistance has increased from 11% to 29% since the global rollout of ART started. So what factors have contributed to that trend? I think, first of all, we all know that this is a virus that has an extraordinary rate of genetic mutation, genetic errors in some ways. And this is what undermined monotherapy with AZT. This is what undermined dual therapy. And of course, now is posing a threat to a lot of the frontline triple therapies. So there is an aspect of this which is innate to the biology of the virus. But it's also the case that what we've seen both in primary resistance and in people who have a previous exposure to antivirals, that would include, for example, pregnant women who were given antiviral drugs, sometimes monotherapy, nabarapine, or in earlier times, AZT, in pregnancy to prevent mother-to-child transmission, or people who've defaulted and now are coming back into care. That both primary resistance and this resistance in people with past exposures have been increasing. When we look at the primary resistance issues, much of that, of course, is transmission from people who have had resistant virus themselves. So it's onward transmission. And when the World Health Organization looked at this, of course, our comment really is in response to the recent 2017 report from WHO on HIV drug resistance. There are a number of issues that come up. So unfortunately, of course, adherence is a fundamental problem. Adherence is probably the Achilles heel both of successful antiviral therapy and of the use of antivirals in prevention for things like pre-exposure prophylaxis. So we have to continue to do better with adherence. The second issue, and adherence often is nested within the individual patient and their provider and whether or not people are taking their drugs as prescribed and staying on them long term. And of course, for now, what we're talking about is for life, daily oral therapy for life. But there are also structural issues. There are stockouts in a number of countries. There have been problems with delivery systems. There have been challenges, and these have some gender aspects, particularly challenging for men, with antiviral programs that weren't fit to working people, that required taking days off from work, that required long wait times at clinics, that have enormous problems with people having to lose work. And there now are a number of efforts to try and address those structural delivery health systems issues that have been probably aiding and abetting resistance and not supporting adherence in the ways that we want. There also has been a lack of the laboratory infrastructure for viral load testing in a number of countries, and that has meant that people were resistant and weren't getting picked up in the surveillance or in clinical care and were on drugs that were not helping them and then we're continuing to transmit the virus. So there are an array of challenges of basically from diagnosis all the way through to long-term adherence that have helped generate this problem. You talk in your article about newer ART regimens that have higher genetic barriers to resistance. What are the challenges to increasing access to those medications? Does it follow some of the same issues you've been talking about? 
Yes, well, that's a very important advance, particularly the primary drug resistance that we're talking about and most of the acquired drug resistance has been to the first-line therapies used in developing countries. So that is primarily regimens with non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, the NNRTIs, primarily efavirenz and nivirapine. And so what we're, of course, so excited about in the U.S. and in other higher-income country settings is the newer classes of drugs, probably in terms of resistance profile, among the most impressive of those is dolutegravir, which is a new class or relatively new class of the integrase inhibitors. Very well tolerated, tends to bring down viral load very quickly in triple combinations, but perhaps most importantly has a very high genetic resistance barrier and is likely to be a game changer, particularly for places where it will be used as first-line therapy. Now, obviously, there were cost issues. Uh, There have been the usual kinds of regulatory approval issues. And the WHO report endorses frontline therapy with dolutegravir-based regimens for countries that have crossed this important threshold of 10% or more of newly diagnosed persons having resistance to NNRTIs. In the most recent surveillance, there were data available for 11 countries that are participating in this primary drug resistance, and six of them had crossed that threshold, so more than one in 10 people with primary resistance. And a number of those are important countries in East and Southern Africa, and this is really the focus of concern. These are high-burden countries, generally low-income, very high HIV prevalence, have had challenges with the management of ARTs in the past, have had stockout issues in some of them, and we're talking about places like Uganda, Namibia, Zimbabwe, Cameroon, Central Africa as well. So the NNRTIs are older generation at this point of the first-line therapy. We think dolutegravir, and that's why we talk about it, is very likely to be a game-changer. Happily, there just has been recently a deal brokered essentially with some of the generic manufacturers for a fixed-dose dolutegravir combination for use in low- and middle-income countries, and that is looking like it's going to cost out at about $75 per patient per year. That's about $0.20 a pill for this fixed-dose combination, and that is going to make this available to many, many more people in many more countries. And the estimation is that about 90% of people with HIV in low- and middle-income countries are going to be covered by this new agreement. You talk in your article about the conflicting imperatives between expanding access for untreated patients and improving the quality of treatment for those whose current therapies are failing. Is the issue there resources, money, or is there other other problems? That's a very important question, and I think it's one of the really challenging areas when you talk to particularly clinicians, providers, but also program managers who are faced with these conundrums. And this is particularly the case in countries, South Africa is a great example, where one in five adults is living with HIV, So they, or Botswana, the prevalence is even higher. So you're talking about an enormous number of people and a very high proportion of adults and children who need antiviral therapy to live. You began by saying we're at a very important milestone. We now have a little over half of people worldwide on treatment. That's 19.5 million is the UNAIDS estimate. That's an extraordinary achievement in global health. It's a huge achievement in human solidarity. 
But it also means that we still have over 17 million people who've never initiated therapy. And we have a substantial proportion of those 19 million who have defaulted at one point or another and who need to be reinitiated on therapy if they're going to have long-term survival benefit. So that means with our current resources, we are not there. We still have an enormous untreated burden of people. Most of that is in low- and middle-income countries. And countries have struggled between the very cheap, generic, first-line therapies and getting as many people initiated on therapy as possible, and better drugs with fewer side effects, where actually adherence is better, but where costs are higher. Third-line therapies for people who have failed second-line are even more expensive and are very rarely available. And the rough calculation, for example, again, to use a South African example, where we have good data on this, is that starting a patient on second line is basically a choice, or it was a choice until this new announcement about the low cost of dilutegravir, of perhaps not starting five more people on primary therapies. So that's a very tough decision for clinicians to make. It's also the case, of course, that people who are not adherent, who have defaulted on therapy, who have spotty records, who are likely to generate resistance, are the patients who need more time and need more clinical support and need more of the kinds of social and structural support that are out there. What we've been really encouraged by is that there are a lot of innovations in support services for these folks that have come from developing countries. So, for example, there are many more peer-led groups. There are PWA groups. There are models of differentiated care where community members go and pick up drugs for other people in the community so that you may only have to do a drug pickup once or twice a year if you're in one of these clubs. And these are all really empirically showing improvements in adherence and hopefully will eventually show uh, declines in resistance. What's the role of pre-exposure prophylaxis? If that were more widely available and access were simpler, would that play a role in reducing rates of drug resistance? Pre-exposure prophylaxis is, of course, a very important new advance. It's based on actually one of the earliest prevention successes we had, right, which was PMTCT, so prevention of mother-child transmission, initially with AZT regimens and then with single-dose nevirapine to the mother and the newborn, which was used for a while, and then finally the move toward treatment for all pregnant women. But the fundamental principle underlying that is essentially that you're using an antiviral not for treatment but for prevention of infection, and in this case, prevention of either intrapartum or postpartum through breastfeeding. PrEP, a pre-exposure prophylaxis as it is now being used, which is daily oral PrEP with Truvada or tenofovir amtricitabine, is a very potent, remarkably effective intervention, particularly for men who have sex with men, so gay and bisexual men, where you have an oral use of the drug for what is principally a gut or an anorectal exposure. For discordant couples, it also has been shown to be effective, although somewhat less so, for women at risk, primary resistance, and transgender women who have sex with men. Where PrEP levels have reached high enough penetration in the population, and so San Francisco is a very good example, uh, the state data from Massachusetts, we're seeing now very encouraging data from the UK. When you have both high levels of treatment 
and pre-exposure prophylaxis in these high transmission contexts, you really can see dramatic reductions in new infections. And ultimately, prevention success is what is going to mean that we don't have to put people on antiviral therapy for life. There have been now at least three cases of people who have uh, appear to have been adherent to daily oral Truvada and still acquired HIV infection. And those have been very rare, but they have been associated with resistance to tenofovir. So there is a resistance concern with PrEP as well, but I think it's overwhelmed by the prevention benefit of this new tool. The challenge now is that PrEP is going to start to be used in Eastern and Southern Africa in that very high transmission heterosexual epidemic. It's being rolled out through the DREAMS initiative with PEPFAR in a number of the most affected sub-Saharan African countries. And we're going to have to see how the adherence and the retention to PrEP work in that context and if we're going to see the same benefit that we're seeing, for example, among gay men in San Francisco. So finally, speaking of PEPFAR, you talk in your article about potential cuts to U.S. funding for global health. So what role does the U.S. currently play in the global HIV prevention and treatment campaign, and what would happen if there were cuts to the budget? Well, the U.S. at this point really is the essential donor. So first of all, we are, by statute, 33% of all the funding that goes to the Global Fund to fight HIV, TB, and malaria. So that's an enormous contribution. Then there is PEPFAR, which is the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. That's the largest contribution to a single disease by any government in history, multiple billions of dollars a year. And between those two and the CDC and USAID resources, the U.S. is now about 64% of all donor money that goes into this space. So it's an enormous burden, and I think everyone working on this perceives that that is not sustainable. And we are actively working, many are actively working to try and increase the contribution of other donors. But that said, the president's initial budget for uh, reductions in the 2017 budget and then his next budget over the summer, the proposal for the 2018 budget, both had significant cuts in this area. The Kaiser Family Foundation did an estimate of what this would look like and suggested that if the 2018 cuts had been implemented as the president proposed, more than a million people would lose access to antiviral therapy in developing countries, and there would be no slots for new people initiating treatment. So we would really be losing ground, and we would be in the extraordinary position of having to have people come off therapy who we have committed to for treatment support. So far, the Congress has rebuffed both of those requests. They also, of course, rebuffed the president's suggested cuts to the HIV research agenda under the NIH. So NIH did well in the Congress's proposal after the president's budget. So at this point, what we can say is where the administration is thinking and what they're proposing would be devastating to these goals. And so far, anyway, the Congress has not gone along with it, and we are continuing to be the single biggest donor in global AIDS. And if these goals that have been articulated of ending the AIDS pandemic as a public health threat by 2030 are going to be realized, the next few years are absolutely critical. I think every model that has looked at this has suggested that there is a window to do this, after which that window may close. And so now is precisely not the time to reduce our contribution. Thank you, Dr. Byer.